the subject is, is God's will. And last week, I did what a lot of teachers do and gave you some non-examples of God, of obeying God's will, following God's will. Okay, there's uh, David who figured building God a temple must be the right thing to do. He found out that was not part of God's will, that David build the temple. We found out, we talked about briefly uh, how the church split in 1054. They were just so big, it was hard to be governed by a single person, that person in Rome. And so there was a split between the East and the West. It's called the East-West Schism, or Schism. I don't know how you pronounce that. Schism. <laughs> uh, it's Schism. But uh, it, it was a break in the, the church, that is, the unity of the church. Now, I don't think God would have any problem with them having a local sense of identity. I don't think that was the problem. The problem was they considered the other guys out of the church. The other guys were no, not Christians, you see. We are the Christians. We are the ones who are going to heaven. We are the ones. Does this sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> we are the ones who are right with God. Those other guys, they may say they're Christians, but they're not Christians. Okay? That was the, the heartbreak of the split. And then we came to the Crusades. Now, the Crusades didn't happen all at once. They happened over the course of a couple of centuries, actually, a couple of hundred years. But specifically, I'm just going to talk about the first crusade in 1095. Now, the crusade, for those who really don't know anything about this, the crusades had one goal in mind, and that was to return Jerusalem to ownership of God. See, right now it was in, under ownership of Islam. Uh, there were just too many Muslims there. And so we're going to go take care of business. And the Pope cried out in a big pep rally, Deus lo volt. Deus, Deus lo volt. God wills it. And he said it was God's will that we wear this uniform that was white. It had a red cross on it. You wear the red cross on the front when you're going to warn them, we're coming. You wear the red cross on your back when you're going back home to let them know, we came. We saw, we came, we conquered. Now, when they went to Jerusalem... It took a long time to get there. They had to go by horse, but most of them went by foot. And we're talking about a couple of hundred thousand people. This was a huge undertaking. Several thousand trained knights, soldiers who were ready for battle. And then hundreds of thousands of farmers with pitchforks, knives, whatever they could find. The problem was their intel, as they would say today, I'm sure you've heard that a few times, Lane. Intel. Their intel was Muslims are dark-skinned people 
who talk different than we do. That was their, that was their target. And so when they went, as you might guess, they killed a lot of people on their way even who were not Muslims. Many were Jews that they killed. And they just found out later. Many were Christians who didn't have the decency to have lighter skin. And they just looked too Muslim. And so they got killed by these crusaders. Once the crusaders conquered Jerusalem, and if you ask, if the question is, did the first crusade succeed? You have to say yes. In their goal, it succeeded. They returned Jerusalem out of the hands of the Muslims and into the hands of the Christians. And so, yes, that was a huge success. But you might ask God if the first crusade was a success. I mean, we have, they, they conquered Jerusalem, but it wasn't a year and a half after they left that the Muslims moved back in. And everything was pretty much like it was. That's why there were so many crusades, you see, over the next several centuries. But go back to that pep rally, that that summer church rally that the Pope got everybody riled up with, Deus Lovult. Did God really say to go kill the Muslims? I, I can't tell you from God's mouth, okay, so don't, don't expect that kind of an answer, but I can tell you from God's word what I read in there, okay. We have a record of journal entries by some crusaders who, were, who went on that campaign, and in their journal, they write with great excitement, great victory, that when they were in Jerusalem, the blood of the infidels came up to their bridles on their horses. You say, what a weird picture. That's a lot of blood. How is that even possible? Revelation 14, verses 19 through 20. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and the blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Now, I doubt that the blood of the Muslims actually was up to the horse's bridles. Maybe they looked at it and there was some splashed on there, I don't know. But they considered that what they had done to be a fulfillment of revelation. And that takes into consideration the, the whole mindset. I've got to make God's will happen on earth. I've got to make it done. And for that, we can go back to Abram and Sarah. We've got to make God's will happen. We've got to make ourselves have a son. We can go back to lots of examples in Scripture to see people who are trying to Make God's will be done. I don't know how 1600 stadia translates to miles. I didn't look it up. Uh, I would have to do what? About 200 miles. I was going to say 
imagine 1,600 stadiums. <laughs> uh, does that help? I, my mind can't picture that line. <laughs> so uh, I doubt that the blood ran that far when they went. So what, what we see when we read about the Crusades is man thinking he's doing God's will, but he's not. Was this Jesus saying, love our enemies? And we go out with a sword and we love our enemies by chopping their heads off? That's not how we fulfill God's love. But it begs a fairly important question. How can we know what God's will is? I've given you non-examples. I want to talk about how we can know what God's will is, how we can obey his will in our lives. There are three steps we need to remember in living out God's will. Now, I didn't make slides for this week. Oh, I did make a crusade slide. You have to take, uh, let that be there, but I don't want to leave it there because that's not what this class is about. If you have a pen and paper, you might jot this down since I didn't make slides. But these three steps are essential. Now, you might break it down and say, well, there's really 10 steps, David, and that's fine. You can, you know, you can make as many steps as you want. But I can tell you for sure these three steps are essential in living out God's will. The first thing you have to do if you're interested in living out God's will is the very first thing Jesus preached, and that's repent. You have to repent. And you say, well, you know, I've actually been pretty good this week. I, <laughs> I haven't gossiped like I usually do. And I, I really tried my best. That's not what he's saying. He looks at us and he looks at those crusaders and he sees no difference if we are going to live according to our will. If we're going to think we're doing God's will, but it's really our will. That's what we need to repent from. We need to say, we will no longer live according to what I want. Sorry, I will no longer live according to what I want. This is something that we can do collectively uh, at the same time, but it's really an individual decision. You have to decide for yourself, I will not live for what I want and you have to be transformed. This is step two. You have to be transformed mentally. You have to stop thinking the way you used to think. I'm, I'm kind of preaching this morning, aren't I? <laughs> you have to stop thinking the way you used to think. How in the world can we change our thoughts? Well, the answer is, I mean, you can, there's a lot of tricks you can do and a lot of practices that you can do, and they're all good. But the bottom line is, you need God to give you a new mind. He promised he will give you a new mind. We, we looked at those scriptures last week. He promised he will give you a new mind. He promised he will give you a new heart. Take away your heart of stone. Put in a heart of flesh. One that beats in alignment with his heart. And you will begin to think like God thinks. And when you see somebody, you don't see what you can get out of that. 
you see them and their needs and you begin to see them as God sees them. And that is a beautiful perspective to have. Okay, so step one, repent, stop. Just decide, I'm going to stop living according to my will. Step two, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's Romans 12. And step three, align yourself with God. Okay, I can't remember now what it is. Amos 3. Can two walk together unless they are in harmony? I think it's oh, three, oh, three, seven. Okay. So if we're going to walk in step with God, we have to think his thoughts. We have to do the things he's told us to do. We have to look at our model, our Savior, and say, how did he go through life? When we see somebody who is struggling spiritually, we need to become a warrior, a defender for that person. We need to consider ourselves conscripted for a new task, this person's salvation. And you need to take it upon yourself to say, I'm going to do everything I can do to help that person out as a, as a soldier. How do you do that? You go to God's word. You see what kind of, you sharpen your sword. You see what kind of things he's got to tell you. You go to your knees on behalf of this person. You fast on behalf of this person. And you say, God, whatever needs to happen in this person's life to bring that person back to you, let it be done. And you don't stop until you get word that they've either chosen to leave or they've chosen to come back. Okay? It's, it's warfare. It's spiritual warfare at its best. This is the kind of soldier God wants. Not the kind that goes and kills people who don't look like me. It's the kind of person who sees a person in need and says, God, take that need away from them. Fill that person's heart. Fill that person's soul with what they need. So the three steps again. Repent, be transformed mentally, and be transformed with your body. Align yourself to how God thinks, how he, he looks at the world. Now, <clears throat> in talking about what God's will is, how we can recognize God's will in our lives, I, I realize there are five things that are essential to that. And I hate to just give you list after list, I started to do a visual on a slide, but I thought about it, and I, I really want you to have this picture in your head, okay? So I'm going to give you a visual to hold in your head, uh, if you can. If you can't, please write it down on paper. We're going to build a house, the house of obedience to God's will, okay? First, we have to have the foundation, I can't think of a house that you build without starting on the foundation first. And so the foundation, what is it that we do in this world? What's our purpose in life? The foundation there is to give God glory. That is why we're here. Somebody turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. I'm going to have you all read some scripture while I'm doing this. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 12. It's right at the end of Ecclesiastes. Now, if you know what this means, I'd like you to start reading at verse 12b. Okay, verse 12b through 14. If you start reading at A, that's fine. But here, who's got it? Ecclesiastes chapter 12, starting in verse 12, halfway through verse 12. 12b through 14. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Fear God. Keep his commandments. This is man's all. I like that. I like that translation. This is why we're here, my friends. This, this is our purpose in life. What is the meaning of life? That's it. Right there in Ecclesiastes it tells you. Now, this is going to sound silly to some, but it's actually scriptural. What is the purpose of a rock? The purpose of a rock is to give God glory. How does it do it? By being what it was created to be and doing exactly what it was created to do. You say, well, how can a rock have a choice? He doesn't. Of all God's creation, only we and angels have a choice. For angels, I think it's they had a choice, and they took it. We're still in the choosing ground. Okay? Rocks don't have a choice. They just give glory to God. How do I know? What did Jesus tell his uh, followers when, when or the, I mean the uh, Pharisees, when they said, Jesus, stop these people. They're praising you. That's heresy. I guarantee if these people stop, you're going to hear it from the rocks <laughs> because they glorify their God. Trees. How does a tree glorify God? How does that pecan tree in your backyard glorify God? It gives pecans every year. It blossoms. It buds. It uh, leafs out. I guess tr- pecan trees don't blossom, do they? But anyway... <laughs> It, it does what pecan trees are supposed to do until it can't do it anymore, and then it dies. And it feeds other pecan trees, okay? So it does exactly God's will. Creation does God's will. We do God's will if we choose to. So that is the foundation of this house that we're building. We need to choose to give God glory by obeying His will. We're talking about how to know God's will and how to do God's will. So that's number one, the first thing. The second thing is we've got to build up the skeleton of the house. I'm no builder, and I might get some of these out of order. (laughs) Forgive me if I do. But it seems to me the next thing you've got to do is put up the framework of the house. For that, I'm going to call that unconditional love. You've got to have the structure of the house before you can start building on it. And before you do anything, you've got to have the love of God in you. Uh, Somebody turn to Colossians chapter 1. And let's see, do we have a mic runner? 
this morning who would volunteer to... Thank you, Terry. Colossians chapter 1. And uh, when you get the mic, read verse 9. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, that verse doesn't use the word love. Do you notice that? But it's filled with unconditional love. Look at what it says. Look at the verbs in there, in whatever translation you have. We've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through. You're looking for the best of another person. I want to read a quote. I read this a long time ago in a book called No Man is an Island. It's by a a Catholic uh, monk named Thomas Merton. He's one of my spiritual heroes, guys. He, he knew so much. He figured out so much. He said in this book, One who really loves another is not merely moved by the desire to see him contented and healthy and prosperous in this world. Love cannot be satisfied with anything so incomplete as to be contented in this world. If I am to love my brother, I must somehow enter deep into the mystery of God's love for him. If I am to truly love my brother, it's got to be unconditional. Now, we're pretty good about defining unconditional love as it doesn't matter what you do, I'm still going to love you. Okay, we got that part. We understand that. We even, some of us, dare to go so far as to say, It doesn't matter what you do to me, I'm still going to love you, okay? But there's a part of this that I'm, this is a confession, okay? This is the part of unconditional love that I have never been good at, and I'm going to admit it to you right here. Unconditional love loves the other person so much that you're willing to confront them if you see them dying spiritually. I've never been good at confrontation. I'll tell you what I blame it on, if you want to hear my excuse. I blame it on seeing so much negativity in the world and so much criticism, so much cynicism. I don't want to be like that. I just want to love people. So I become Santa Claus. and Or better, (laughs) I become a grandpa. Okay? Now, we can relate to that. My family actually gave me a shirt that says, I don't have to listen to you. You're not my granddaughter. (laughs) And I tell you, that is exactly right. Uh, I have, I treat people like I treat my grandkids. I I just, I want to love them. I want to be nice to them. I want to see good happen in their lives. If I see you slipping, if I see you going, well, I've got sin in my life. Who am I to go to you? I, I just can't do that. That's not unconditional love. Brothers and sisters, if I want to have the framework of obeying God's will in my life, I have to learn to confront people because I love them. 
That doesn't mean become an old ogre, no. They're not going to see me as an ogre if they already know that I love them. They, they're going to see me as someone who loves them so much that I'm able to go to them and, and confront them with something. So that's the skeleton. Three, the roof. The roof, believe it or not, is servanthood. The top is the bottom. See, the, the, the roof is servanthood. Now, I need somebody to read John chapter 13. Raise your hand if you'd like to read that, even if you don't have it yet, because I have a few things I want to say before you read so that Terry can be on his way to give you the mic. John chapter 13, you're going to read verses 12 through 17. Now, what did Jesus say when he, taught, he described a servant? If you want to be first, you have to make yourself last. Let's look at Jesus the servant in John chapter 13, verses 12 through 17. When he had finished washing their feet, he put his, on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. We can use a lot of attributes to describe God. One that you don't hear very often, but should be in the top ten, is he's a servant. God is a servant. That's his nature. That's who he is as a person. When Jesus came... He had the attributes of God in man form. And he was a servant to people. He didn't see the woman caught in adultery as a sinner who needs to die. He saw her as a woman in need, probably unclothed at the time. And so he drew attention away from her by doodling in the dirt. I think that's really all he was doing. We need to see people as does that person need something? Does that person need something? How can I be a servant to the people that I meet each day? That doesn't mean to be a doormat. God didn't say, let people walk all over you and mistreat you without uh, any regard for what's right. Now, he did say, bless those who persecute you. So if it comes to that, yes, we do have to be willing to be persecuted for God. But somebody help us understand the difference between being a servant and being a doormat. Somebody have an idea about that? Help us flesh that out a little bit, Pam? Hey, hang on just a second. Words of wisdom coming from Pam. <laughs> um, a servant is whenever you're willing to help somebody. Okay. And being a doormat is when you're letting people walk all over you. Okay, good, good. Anybody else have a, a thought about that? That's good. I like that. Okay. All right, well, 
I think we kind of visualize the difference between a servant and a doormat. Okay, yeah, thank you. I think maybe one of the biggest difference between a servant and a doormat would be that a doormat is just there to be the yes man. A doormat is, is there waiting for something to come for him to do for you. Whereas a servant is watching for an opportunity to do something for you. A ah, servant is good. a servant is studying those around him to see what he can do to help them, to good. see what he can do to lift them up. Yeah, good. Oh, okay, I'm not going to go any further than that because that is a perfect definition. Thank you. And Pam, thank you for your input as well. So we've got the foundation, the skeleton, the roof. Now we need to get the walls put up in the interior. This is community, okay? The walls that come together, touch each other, are like people coming together and being with one another. We need to value this. We need to value when you meet with a Christian to, to talk about spiritual matters at Dairy Queen. We need to value the intentionally getting together with other Christians for spiritual purposes. That's community. First uh, John is what we need to read next. First John chapter 1. Raise, uh, <laughs> I'm a teacher. I almost said raise a quiet hand. <laughs> raise a hand if you if you would be willing to read that, okay, over, Terry. First um, John chapter one, First uh, John chapter one, verses one and two, and then pause for me to say something, and then read three and four. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our own eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. <laughs> John, it, he was being beset by people who said Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. He, he was just a spirit because God can't be fleshly. Flesh is sinful. God is not sinful. So that wasn't really a person. And John begins his letter by saying, I touched his skin, I combed his hair, I cleaned up after him when he threw up. He was a person just like I was a person. Okay, he didn't say all that, but I I want you to get the gist of what he's trying to say there. He's also talking about the Trinity there. He's talking about, he doesn't mention the Holy Spirit, but he's talking about the deification of Christ. That man is part of that Trinity. Okay, go ahead. Verses 3 and 4. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Now, if, you, if somebody said, what's the, what's the Bible about? Okay, At least the New Testament. What's the New Testament about? You can talk about the story of Jesus, and that's exactly what it's about. But in essence, if you want to boil it down to a sentence, that's it in First John. 
It's an invitation to join a community. First, the community was the Trinity. Then he created. And he's inviting that creation to join that community. When we get together, brothers and sisters, it's more than just ticking off a to-do list thing that you had there for this week. When we get together, we are celebrating that joining of community. This is part of God's will. This is part of knowing God's will. When we get together, we learn from each other how God's acting in your life and things that that Tim's going to bring us about how we can trust the Bible and know that it's God's word. And we can use it as a sword when we go into the community and fight not the people, but the demons and Satan who want to take those people. Okay, so when we get together, we are community, and that's part of God's will. And that's so important that I wanted to include it in this five aspects of building a house. The fifth one, the decoration of the house. We've got to put up the pictures and what kind of plate are you going to put on this light switch? And you got to get right down. These are little things. But guess what? You know, they say the devil's in the details. That's not true. God is in the details. Somebody read verse, uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 10. Yes, yes. Yes, Luke chapter 16, verse 10. I'll read it. Okay, thank you. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. What's the first thing he says? He talked about big or little? Little. He's talking about little things. Are you honoring God? Remember the foundation? Are you giving God glory? In the little things. I'll wash the dishes tonight because my wife looks tired. She might need a break. That's a very sexist thing to say, wouldn't it? <laughs> but I'll wash the dishes because the one who usually washes the dishes looks tired. So <laughs> maybe I should say it that way. Or, uh, well, you know, things at work that, that you can pick on. Things about TV shows you can pick on. Things about movies. Things about how you spend your time. Okay? These are are little things. Does God really care about the little things? Well, did God care about the little things when he created the universe? Think about the littlest things that we know about. I mean, what would you say? Jiggers. (laughs) The littlest things we know about. I was thinking Adams, but yeah, Chiggers, okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, or, or let's, okay, let's go that direction. Sparrows. You see sparrows everywhere. You see sparrows probably daily, and you don't even think about it. Does God care about sparrows? <laughs> yeah, he says he does. Jesus says, uh, it, there's a, a neat little math thing you can do. Matthew chapter 10 And Luke chapter 12, in one of them, the first one, he says, uh, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And in Luke 12, he says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? 
Now do that math. Two sparrows sold for a penny. Five sparrows for two pennies. It's like they're having a sale on sparrows, isn't it? (laughs) Okay, so you get a fifth sparrow for free. Well, when that fifth sparrow that's just thrown in for free falls dead and nobody saw it die, guess what? God took time out in his day to attend that sparrow funeral. He knew about it. He knows who it affected. He knows how it's going to affect others uh, as far as his body decaying and then feeding the ground and all that. He knows all of that. He is in the details. The atom is so perfectly formed. It is, the, the structure is incredible. You get down to the very small, the quantum level, suddenly what we know about physics doesn't make sense on that level. I'm not going to get into all that, but <laughs> Newton, <laughs> Newton and Einstein don't get well along well with Planck and, and quantum theory. And what works for planets doesn't seem to work down here as far as we understand it. But as far as God understands it, he made the thing. He set it up in the first place. We just haven't figured out how it works yet. Okay, that's all that means. God is in the details, the little things. What kind of light switch you're going to choose? Now, some people take this too far. Does God care what color shirt I wear? You know, I don't know. What's God's will? Here's God's will. (laughs) That I wear a shirt, yeah. God's will is this. If I really believe that God's will is going to be done in my life, like I pray it is, if I really believe that, Whatever happens today is going to be God's will. If I said amen at the end of that prayer, God, may your will be done in my life today. And I said amen, I'm saying, I believe it's going to happen. And that statement of faith is enough to tell God we're on the same team. My mind's been transformed to his mind. Whatever happens today is God's will. And you say, but wait, people are going to do stupid things today. I'm going to do stupid things today. That's part of God's will. God has never had perfect people to work with except his son. He understands we're failed human beings. We're going to go on crusades. We're going to build temples. We're going to do things that were not part of his will, but he will bring good out of that. So whatever happens today, know that God is in charge. He is bringing about his will And he's making things happen according to his plan. So we finally see how James can be understood. Somebody read James chapter 1. I think it's verses 3 and maybe a little more about rejoicing when things go wrong. And you don't have to read what it produces and all that. I just want to read, hear that, that first part. James chapter 1, I think it's verse 3. Who has it? Okay, Sandy. Can you? Yes. Chapter 1, verse 3. James 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Endurance is not the only thing it produces, is it? There's a list there. It it, kind of goes in order. Uh, 
But the point is, we can rejoice when things go bad. We can rejoice when we hear there's an earthquake in Turkey that killed tens of thousands of people. How can we rejoice? We're not rejoicing over the deaths of the people. We're rejoicing in what God's going to do with that. We can rejoice when we hear that there's been another scandal in a, a bank and, and the CEO has gone down. And we can rejoice when we hear that because we know there are Christians in there that are praying for God's will to be done who are involved with the, the scheme of what's happening. And God's will is going to be done. I meant to left time for questions. I'm sorry I didn't. But I hope that you got something from today about doing God's will, knowing God's will, and doing God's will.